Health Canada just released the results of its 2020 Canadian Cannabis Survey, uh, in which it notes a whopping 27% of us had used cannabis in the last year, and approximately half of those surveyed stated they use cannabis for medical purposes, with rates of usage particularly high among people reporting poor, poor or fair mental health. This is the opening paragraph to an article written recently by our next guest, Dr. Rob Whitley in Montreal. The article is entitled, Destigmatize Cannabis Use for Mental Health. Opinion, one in seven Canadians use cannabis for medicinal purposes, yet they are labeled as irresponsible potheads. Dr. Rob Whitley is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University in Montreal and joins us this morning. Dr. Rob, good morning, sir. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. How are you doing this morning? Well, I'm doing just fine, thank you. This very interesting uh, result from the Health Canada survey, 27% of Canadians use cannabis in the last year. Is that a surprisingly high, low, or just about what you expected number, Rob? Um, I think when you look at the statistics, we need to put it in the context of the legalization of cannabis which occurred just over two years ago. Um, And now cannabis is a legal substance, and many people can receive prescriptions uh, which can help with issues such as chronic pain. It can help with issues such as anxiety. It can help regulate people's sleep. But we have seen an increase of uh, cannabis use since legalization. But the one thing that hasn't particularly changed is what you alluded to, is that there are still a number of stigmas and stereotypes about people who use cannabis. So we all know the derogatory terms that are used to refer to people who use cannabis, and you mentioned some of them, potheads or uh, druggies or weed heads. Or, or Stoners. Stoners. The, the, the <laughs> list does go on. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. and, and we could um, have those stereotypes in our mind, but what the research actually shows is that there's a huge heterogeneity of people out there who are using cannabis. Um, a large number of veterans use cannabis. Many of them were injured in the line of duty or yes. uh, had operational stress injuries such as PTSD. And and cannabis can help them deal with chronic pain. We know that there's, um, the last few days I've got emails from former RCMP officers who got injured in the line of duty uh, and are now using cannabis. We know that um, some women use cannabis to deal with menstrual cramps. Um, We know that people who are older, who are having trouble sleeping, can use cannabis. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a great heterogeneity out there. And I think it's important for us to understand that People use cannabis for a variety of reasons, and and these stereotypes are really quite outmoded and outdated. Indeed. Now, can we unpack some of this cannabis usage stuff a little bit here, Dr. Rob? Because I think that uh, is confusing to some, particularly, first of all, the, the, the notion of using an illegal substance. It's been legal for a couple of years, and uh, those uh, in government uh, cannabis tracking situations have noticed since the pandemic began, as is the case with alcohol consumption across Canada, uh, c- cannabis consumption has also increased at approximately the same level, just a lot of people confined to quarters, so to speak, and uh, passing the time uh, in more colorful ways, uh, let's put it that way. But let's unpack the cannabis part, because your uh, interest and uh, primary involvement with cannabis deals with medicinal or medical applications. Of the, the group of Canadians who smoke or use cannabis, how many of them are medical users versus recreational users? Well, there's some very interesting statistics from the aforementioned 2020 uh, Canadian Cannabis Survey. So we know indeed that 27% of people in Canada have used cannabis in the last year. Mm -hmm. And around half of them, so that's 14% of Canadians, use them for medicinal purposes. Um, And that can include physical health issues, like I said, chronic pain, menstrual cramps. Um, It can also include mental health Mm -hmm. reasons. So people with PTSD, people with anxiety can use cannabis to to help them deal with the symptoms. Um, And I think a really interesting fact that came out of that survey is that 60% of people who use cannabis stated, for medicinal reasons, stated that this allowed them to reduce other prescription medications, which includes opioids. And I think this is a really important point that um, we know that many people are using cannabis to, to help with issues such as chronic pain, back pain, other forms of pain. 
Uh, and typically the medical response to this was to prescribe opioids. And I'm sure in British Columbia, you're well aware that we have this terrible phenomena called the, the opioid crisis where people are getting addicted to opioids. Mm-hmm. And again, there's stereotypes that the people who are addicted to opioids are, are kind of druggies and, and people who, have, uh, who, are, who are homeless or people who are, uh, have a certain situation in life. When in fact, a lot of the people who are addicted are people who uh, were working men, uh, were people who were, who were fishermen, who were construction workers, who were in the military, who were in the police, and they got an injury yes. um, in their workplace or in their line of duty. They were prescribed opioids, and these are addictive drugs, and then they got addicted. So that many of these people have started smoking cannabis since it was legalized, either with a prescription or without a prescription. And, and 60% of these people have been able to reduce their medication as a consequence of smoking cannabis. So w- what I'm trying to do is to put the big picture out there and to try and get people to understand that there's this massive heterogeneity of people who smoke cannabis and there's a massive heterogeneity of reasons why they smoke cannabis and, uh, and, and it's not good for society to stigmatize and stereotype these people because uh, these reasons are manifold and, and actually one could say that it's better to have people smoking cannabis and addicted to opioids because we know that the, uh, this can have a terrible effect on people's lives when they're addicted to these drugs. Yeah, Dr. Whitley, the medical community has been, however, reluctantly, slowly coming on side with the notion of cannabis as, a, as an antidote uh, for um, some m- mental illnesses and issues, uh, and particularly as an, as an, uh, 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 an aid in, in dealing with uh, addictions to opioids and other situations. But the medical community has been, what shall we say, reluctant uh, to accept cannabis uh, and so the acceptance is growing how many uh, doctors uh, in Canada are actively prescribing cannabis instead of opioids or including at least in their list of possibilities when prescribing for situations um, you use the term medical community there a lot Sterling and you talked about the medical community I think it's also important to state that the medical community is very heterogeneous and very diverse as well. Indeed. And there are big discussions going in within the medical community about the, the utility and, and effectiveness and efficacy of cannabis mm-hmm. for physical health reasons and mental health reasons. And there are some studies which show that it's better than other alternatives. Some show it's similar. And then there's other studies which show that there are risks associated with cannabis use, um, especially over usage and in young people when the brain is developing sure. there are studies which show that cannabis can be linked to the development of psychosis um, so it's a very complex picture and I think the point I'm making is that we've kind of emphasized too much the kind of risks and the risk of overusage and the link to psychosis and schizophrenia which is there and is a particularly important in the developing adolescent brain but then in, in older adults, um, it's actually a lot of benefits uh, associated with cannabis use. Rob Whitley is on the line, joining us from McGill University in Montreal, where he is an associate uh, professor in the Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Whitley wrote an article picked up by the national media a couple of days ago entitled Destigmatize Cannabis Use for Mental Health. And uh, Rob, I want to just quote something from the article. In short, the stigmas and stereotypes surrounding cannabis users are obscuring the reality that many people from many walks of life are are now using cannabis for beneficial health purposes. And then you go on to talk about the Mental Health Commission, uh, recognizing that this need to destigmatize cannabis in our midst has commissioned a series of documentaries, a project that you're involved with. So tell us now about what you want to do vis-a-vis uh, using visual medium to try and uh, do what your article talks about, destigmatize cannabis use in our midst. Yes, well, the Mental Health Commission of Canada, which is based in Ottawa and is a national federal organization, has invested a, a large amount of money in projects which are aiming to inform the public and destigmatize uh, cannabis use for mental health reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm very fortunate that they funded me to lead one of these projects. Um, and in this project, what we're going to do is we're going to develop a series of short, informative, educational documentaries detailing 
uh, the heterogeneity, the diversity of people who use cannabis, um, and also detailing the, the, the various reasons that people use cannabis. So what I mentioned earlier, things like chronic pain, mm-hmm. things like uh, sleep issues, things like anxiety, things like menstrual cramps, things like um, all, all other uh, variety of reasons. And we want to interview uh, a number of people from across Canada for this documentary. Um, and we're mainly foregrounding the voices of people with mental health issues who use cannabis. So we're looking to interview, and all these interviews will be done remotely because of COVID-19. Of course, sure, yeah. Um, we'll do them virtually. So anyone is welcome to contact me who would be interested in, interested in participating in this documentary, uh, we're simply going to ask a few uh, simple questions. Why do you use cannabis? What kind of impact does it have on you? Uh, does it have any beneficial effects? Does mm-hmm. it have any harmful effects? Uh, we're trying to make sure that these documentaries show the big picture. We're going to outline some of the risks, but we're going to focus mostly on the benefits. Um, and like I said, we're looking to interview a kind of average person uh, or people who uh, might be surprising for the public to know and understand the smoke cannabis regularly. So, like I said, military veterans, former RCMP and sure. former police officers, uh, seniors, a lot of seniors smoke cannabis, uh, parents, a lot, of, a lot of mothers and fathers uh, smoke cannabis to deal with uh, pain and other issues. Um, so, like I said, there's a whole diversity, and we'd really love to hear from anybody in the Vancouver or, or BC re- region who would be willing to take part in one of these interviews, and we'd we do have the option of making it anonymous. We can adjust the lighting and, and the shadow in case somebody feels that they'll be stigmatized by taking part in this documentary. But uh, we would love to hear from anybody locally. And these documentaries, um, we aim to make them. They'll be freely available on social media. Uh, it's a not-for-profit exercise. But more importantly than that, we're actually going to arrange to have a series of organized screenings of the videos at, at post-secondary institutions, at healthcare providers, uh, at other community organizations where we'll have an introduction, we'll show the documentaries, we'll have a panel discussion. Uh, we're, we're really going to try and use them to educate important stakeholders in society. So students who are the next generation of leaders, uh, clinicians and healthcare providers who might have their own misunderstanding. Well, uh, there you go. And there's that medical community part again, uh, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, sadly, we do know that healthcare providers have similar levels of stigma and stereotypes as the rest of the population sure. and sometimes even more. Well, it's, it's we interesting really to educate them. Yeah, it's interesting that you would point out that you, if uh, if someone in Vancouver or listening to us right now wants to participate in it, yes, I am using cannabis. Yes, I do benefit from it. It is a very positive influence on my life. It was pretty messy before I finally came around to this uh, approach. Uh, and, and it's interesting, though, that you would mention anyone who uh, wanted to contribute to the documentary and who still might be apprehensive or just flat out nervous because of the stigma. So you can put them, you can pixelate their face or or change the lighting so that they're not recognizable. It is interesting. You're making a documentary about cannabis and mental health and stigma, and yet many of the people participating actually are quite concerned about being associated and having perpetuating the stigma instead of breaking it down. That's how strong it is. Well, sadly, we know from the research that one of the places where the stigma is the most intense is the workplace. And many people who smoke cannabis for medical reasons would certainly not share this information with their boss or their supervisors or even their colleagues. Sure. Uh, And we completely understand that. And we wouldn't want to put anyone's career or anyone's social circle at risk. So we're willing to take those steps and uh, it is a kind of sad indictment on the way society looks at cannabis. Um, but it, I would like to say reducing stigma regarding cannabis use, regarding mental illness, regarding um, suicide, all these kind of issues. It's an incremental uh, work in progress. It's a step-by-step approach. And the, the literature does show that there have been improvements in reducing these stigmas over the last 10 or 20 years. But we don't want to throw people in at the deep end and we don't want to... Uh, like I said, put anyone at risk. So if anybody wants to contact me, they can. And we treat their participation in the strictest confidence. And if they want to go on camera and talk about these things, we'd be delighted. But if they'd like to 
do it in shade or shadow with yeah. a, in, in, in a mask. We can arrange that as well. Right, of course, in a mask. Well, now, talk about an appropriate time to put your mask on if you don't particularly yeah, want everyone to recognize you. Robert.Whitley at McGill.ca. Friends, if you'd like to jump in on Dr. Rob's uh, documentary on stigma and cannabis use, it's Robert.Whitley. Whitley at McGill.ca, and he'd love to hear from you. Uh, Rob, the, the, the notion, the stigma, uh, has something to do with the fact that cannabis, not all cannabis, is, is, uh, is used the same way. For example, uh, cannabis containing THC and cannabis that is CBD, two completely different uh, strains from the same source, uh, and yet the benefits are, uh, are equally appreciated uh, by people who use them differently. Yes, and I think it's also important to state that there are very various different methods of consuming cannabis. So I guess the average person thinks about smoking cannabis and people sat in a dark and dingy basement in a circle listening to the Grateful Dead with uh, five um, joints running around. But many people can now use edibles, for example. Yes. And I know research shows that many people will take a small edible um, in the late at night at 9 or 10 p.m., and that can really help them sleep so mm-hmm. they're not smoking. Um, there's cannabis oils as well that people use um, in various ways. And again, we see that in uh, more elderly people will use these uh, because the smoking of cannabis, and, and we shouldn't deny this, can have uh, released carcinogenic properties. So some of these other um, methods uh, can reduce that risk. Yes. So there's, I guess the key word behind this whole approach that I'm taking is kind of diversity or heterogeneity. There's a heterogeneity of reasons that people use cannabis, a heterogeneity of ways that people um, can use uh, cannabis, um, a heterogeneity of people who who use cannabis. Um, but the average research shows the average person has these kind of stereotypes and stigmas. And we really want to break those stigmas and reduce those stereotypes and, uh, and show the world and educate the world that the uh, the stereotypes are far from the reality. Now, good stuff, Rob. And we're almost out of time here. How's it going so far? How long, how far are you into this project? And are you receiving uh, feedback, good feedback from people who go, yeah, sure, sign me up. I'd love to do it. Well, I've received dozens of emails since I published my, my article um, in the Vancouver Sun and some other media outlets in the, uh, two days ago. Uh, and the great thing, like I said, is one of them is a former RCMP officer. One of them is a former firefighter a couple of veterans, uh, a couple of people in their 60s and 70s mm-hmm. contacted me. Uh, a grandmother contacted me. Um, so I'm really getting that, that diversity, but we'd certainly love to hear from more people and get a more diverse sample of, to participate in these documentaries. So I'd like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to come on the show and just to encourage people to contact me, and we'd be delighted to, to talk to them and listen to their stories. and hear what they have to say. Well, indeed, Rob, it's a pleasure to have you on board this morning. And uh, by way of uh, continuing the conversation, as this project picks up steam and you start to actually package up some of these documentaries, can you can you let Andrew and Julie and I know that what's going on and we can uh, connect again and you can tell me what you're finding, what people are saying to you, and, and we'll take it from there? Oh, I'd be absolutely delighted, Sterling. I thank you for the offer. I'll, I'll drop uh, Andrew an email in a, in a few months when we have some progress, and I'd be delighted to come back on the show. Wonderful. Well, we'll look forward to that conversation, and the best of luck between now and then, Dr. Rob, with this project. It is important, and people need to hear the message. Thanks for sharing it with us this morning. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Sterling, and uh, have a wonderful weekend to you and all the listeners. You too. There's Dr. Rob Whitley from the Department of Psychiatry at McGill University in Montreal, Robert.Whitley at McGill.ca. If you have any interest in participating in his documentary uh, program, which sounds pretty darn interesting. And our guest joining us from York University in Toronto is Dasantila Galemi-Kotra. Dr. Galemi-Kotra and a a friend co-wrote an article that we picked up on a couple of days ago entitled COVID-19 Vaccine Rollout, Why a Mask and Social Distancing Are Still Needed, Even If You Get the Shot. A very timely piece indeed. Desantila Golemi-Kotra, good morning and welcome to the program. 
Good morning, Mr. Erdinger. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us, and this is very, very timely stuff. As more and more of us are becoming vaccinated, and yes, we have a slight delay in the provision from one of the one of the manufacturers that's slowing the process down a little bit, but nonetheless, we are adapting to the fact that vaccines are coming. And and you say right in your article, "Whoa, not so fast." <laughs> this is this is not the time to let our guards down at all, is it? No, it isn't actually, and we should be even more on guard and uh, 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 more, even more compliant with the uh, preventive measures that uh, uh, provinces have put forward. And uh, give us some reasons for that. I mean, there is a certain degree of fatigue that you must acknowledge is at play. That combined with the vaccine is causing, well, more than a few of us to uh, be a little more cavalier about these uh, uh, COVID protocols. That's true, actually. For example, in, in Ontario, um, uh, after the holidays, uh, it was reported that the number of people uh, uh, that didn't uh, comply completely with the preventive measures were about 35 percent. And mm-hmm. this was a huge number. So, uh, again, um, with the vaccines uh, being rolled out and with the reports that uh, these two vaccines uh, have high efficacy rate, meaning preventing the um, severe illness, and that's something that has to be uh, emphasized, it's huge and it is very good. Mm-hmm. But uh, something that we sort of uh, has fallen off the radar is the fact that these two vaccines, as good as they are in preventing the uh, severe illnesses, um, do not actually, we don't know yet, there is no evidence that uh, they can limit the transmission. And what, I, what that means actually is that someone can uh, be a carrier of the virus and transmit to other people, but would not uh, be uh, severely uh, ill. Um, so, and that's very important uh, to recognize that although you may get vaccinated and although you won't get sick, but you can spread the virus to other people that haven't received uh, the vaccine and yet. That, right. And, not, and that's. And we also don't know. I'm sorry, sorry go ahead. We, go also ahead. Do, we also don't know um, for how long the, uh, the immunity uh, for the person that received the vaccine will last. Uh, those data are not. Uh, um, back in, if you will. Well, we learned uh, over the past few months that uh, being asymptomatic, in other words, you can have COVID-19 and not show any symptoms and and, and, to go and have it literally pass uh, through you without much impact, but in the process you can be still a transmitter. And your point here is that even though you, be, you get your vaccine, you get your shot, which now may make you less likely to uh, succumb to COVID, nonetheless, you could still be a carrier even if after you've had your shot. Correct. Actually, that's true. And that uh, 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 presents a, a high risk in terms of uh, uh, spreading the virus in the community. Again, um, this um, high risk is there because it will take some time for the uh, uh, majority of population, hopefully up to 85% of the population will get vaccinated. So meanwhile, those that are getting vaccinated may feel like, oh, they are protected. Yes. But forgetting that uh, they are protected, but they may uh, not prevent uh, the virus uh, um, being spread to other people. And one thing that we don't know, and this, of course, is such a work in progress. And I mean, we do have to take our hats off to people like Pfizer and Moderna and the other companies that have come up with uh, these vaccines in just astonishingly quick amounts of time compared to the development of vaccines in, in previous for previous problems. But I, I suppose maybe that that's that's not helping us in terms of the way that well it's it's just all sort of falling into place so smoothly that you know once I get my shot well then I'm home free. We don't know, for example, that that if you are automatically immune from the time you get your first shot yet. We don't know that yet, do we? No, we don't, actually. Um, So what we know, though, for example, with the Pfizer, is that after the first dose of the vaccine, it does take about uh, two weeks, actually, for the body to produce these antibodies. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition, it seems like after uh, the first dose, the uh, protection that we get from a, a severe illness is about 50%. So the efficacy rate is 50%. So okay. it's, it's low. It's like a gambling. Uh, you know, after the first dose, you may get some protection. You may not uh, get some protection. But this, the, the second dose, the sort of the so-called the booster dose, that is essential in terms of providing that 95% efficacy rate. Sure. 
And so we have to be mindful of that in the sense that, yes, you take the first dose, but you still have to be uh, compliant with those measures to protect yourself, first of all, but also other people in terms of spreading uh, the virus. And that's where the real risk is that people, the idea that you get vaccinated because we have we get vaccinated from uh, for other diseases and you get a, a good protection right away and very high. Yeah. We may think that, all right, I can go out now and or bring people at my place. So, so that's uh, sort of a false uh, um, protection that you may get. Uh, it may complicate the matters in terms of uh, increasing the number of outbreaks and the size of outbreaks. Yeah, Dr. Galemi Kocher, you use the word gamble, and I want, I want to follow up on that because the health experts in this country have, have decided to gamble. The original, the original game plan was we're going to get, and I'll use just a flat-out round number, we're going to get 100,000 doses in British Columbia. So what we're going to do is vaccinate 50,000 people twice. That was the original game plan. And then they decided, no, we're going to vaccinate 100,000 people once and gamble that the second 100,000 doses will be arrived and in place in a timely enough fashion that that second shot for that 100,000 people will go in a timely fashion. We know that one vaccine says 21 days between shots. The other one says 28 days. And now the public is a bit of a credibility problem because now we have politicians saying, well, you know, that could be 42 days or it could be 97 days. In other words, conveniently stretching these time time frames out to accommodate their gamble. So we, the people in the middle of all of this, are going, so who do we believe? Yes, um, and I, I, it's unfortunate, actually. So um, I think the government is trying to um, uh, sort of find a balance. Um, yes, there is a limited number of, of vaccines. And yes, the cases are going increasing rapidly, mm-hmm. um, which uh, leads to higher hospitalizations and numbers, but also uh, lack of ICU beds. For mm-hmm. example, in Ontario, we are really in dire situation. So here uh, uh, they're thinking, well, let's just cover uh, as many as we can and gain some time. But yes, indeed, and um, uh, at the end becomes uh, an issue of uh, uh, trusting. Uh, and I'm sure, uh, probably there was a belief that uh, the second dose of vaccine will uh, be coming from Pfizer on the right time. Sure. And now we learn. So um I don't want to minimize the challenge that the governments are facing, and certainly uh, uh, the fear that the population uh, may feel in terms of uh, are we taken care of the way we should take, be taken care of. Uh, but I personally, uh, reading the, the data coming from both companies, would like to stick with the, the two-dose regimen uh, for the uh, um, period of time that they have uh, um, uh, suggested. Sure. 21 for Pfizer and 28. And... Um, uh, so I don't have a, any a better answer, but right. uh, there is a, a push that we, and actually it came also from the uh, deputy uh, public uh, um, uh, chief officer, public health chief officer, uh, Dr. New, that um, the recommendation is to doses and we have to uh, do our best uh, to stick with it to those regimen. We're joined on the line from Toronto and York University by Dr. Dasantila Kolemi Gotra, who is a professor of biology and co-author of a piece at theconversation.com entitled COVID-19 Vaccine Rollout. Why a mask and social distancing are still needed even if you get the shot. And and Dr. Kolemi Gotra, I want to talk a little bit about herd immunity. You've, you've alluded to it a couple of times in our conversation. Some people are talking about 70% of the population. We've seen people like Dr. Fauci in the States talking about 85% of the population. What what do you understand the, the necessary threshold for Canadians to reach and, and we achieve herd immunity? Uh, yes. So um, considering how uh, contagious this virus is and the easiness with each uh, with each which it uh, spreads, spreads. Um, there is the uh, the the need in the community feels that um, we should reach, we should aim for higher vaccination rate, 85 percent, in order to really. Um, so the idea of the herd immunity is that you want to prevent this virus from finding any um, susceptible host 
in order to stop that uh, chain of transmission, right. if you will. So, and more people, like 85% of us, are vaccinated, much less for this virus, which is very easy to transmit, uh, will be to find a susceptible host. So that's actually where the, the notion of this, uh, that is better uh, uh, to go for higher level of vaccination, 85%, in order to really reach a meaningful herd immunity. Okay. Uh, Again, it, 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 it stems from the uh, biology of this uh, virus, the easiness with which it gets uh, transmitted. And, and, and we're seeing new strains, the South African strain. There was one uh, from Europe mm-hmm. as well. And it's, we're hearing predictions from scientists like yourself that these mutations are likely to continue. Do you agree? Oh, yes. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's natural to the virus that as it goes from one host to another um, to actually um, mutate and uh, um, sort of save some of these uh, mutations. So that actually that's why also uh, there is a, a big uh, driving force behind let's uh, prevent as much as we can the transmission because more uh, levy you give to this virus to transmit from person to person, more mutations may get accumulated, being accumulated by this virus. So, um, yes, the virus will do what it does best, uh, mm-hmm. mutate, and will retain those that serve the virus well in terms of uh, make it easier for the virus to transmit from host to host. And um, so that's why vaccination, uh, obviously, at a faster rate, uh, it's necessary in order to, to circumvent the, the transmission rate of uh, this virus. Indeed. But your point and the point of your colleague the, who co-authored this piece uh, at the conversation is this phenomenon. And now the prime minister is talking realistically, uh, saying that by September, any Canadian who wants the vaccine should be able to have that shot. So that's at least, what, six, seven, eight months away. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of mask wearing between now and that uh, September herd immunity deadline. And you're just basically saying, Canada, please keep the mask on and for goodness sake don't let your guard down correct actually and uh, it, it this preventive measures the face coverings the physical distancing the hand washings are relatively simple sure. are doable yes they kind of uh, sort of come into on, on our way if you will on everyday activities but they're easy to do and they are they really work they really work. For example, in, in Ontario, actually, um, um, because I, I know from my own kids in the schools, the outbreaks, actually, the number of outbreaks have been very small. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes to say that, you know, these preventive measures do work, even with young kids, which sometimes is a challenge to, to follow the rules. So, um, yes, vaccination will take some time, but at the end of the year, we'll be in much better position than we are now. But meanwhile, let's just stick with uh, a little bit longer with this uh, uh, wonderful actual preventing uh, measures. They do work and they're relatively easy to, 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 to comply with. And uh, be patient. I mean, uh, uh, our societies have become sort of common to this idea with one pill we should uh, right. get on with our life. That's right. Very short. Well, uh, there are cases where that won't work and uh, we shouldn't complain for as long as there are solutions that we can do and uh, um, should do. A very timely piece of advice, uh, Dr. Golemi Kotra. Thanks so much for sharing it with us this morning here in Vancouver. We appreciate your time, and we wish you well in Lockdown Ontario this weekend. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's Dr. Dazantina Golemi Kotra from the Department of Biology at York University in Toronto. And our guest joining us from Toronto is Claire Browno from McLean's Magazine, who wrote a piece in McLean's recently entitled The Future of Giving. Mutual aid groups and GoFundMe campaigns are thriving as donations move away from traditional causes. Claire Browno, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. And during your years at McLean's, which I understand are coming rapidly to a close, uh, you've tracked uh, uh, charities and charitable giving by Canadians for quite some time. So you've got a lot of experience in this. And tell us about how COVID-19, I entitled this segment uh, in our lineup, COVID-19 changes giving priorities. Would you agree? Um, I would absolutely agree. Yes. Um, so, you know, Canadians just, they have less money right now. <laughs> a lot of us are unemployed. Yep. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a tough time for a lot of people. And so that's affecting how much money uh, people can allocate to charities. And also there are all kinds of programs, you know, if you have in-person programs, if you're a charity that runs a theater, <laughs> you, you know, a, a lot of them are 
unable to perform those activities in COVID. Um, so, yeah, Umbrella Group Imagine Canada has found that more than two-thirds of charities have seen revenues decline uh, since March, and they've dropped by an average of 31%. So that's, you know, that's a big drop for charities. But something else that we're starting to see at the same time um, is that people are asking, you know, how can I help in a more direct way? They're mm-hmm. seeing their neighbors struggling. Um, they're seeing, you know, maybe there there are people who can't, you know, are, are afraid to leave their house to go get medication they need. Um, you know, neighbors who are having to go work in essential jobs and putting themselves in danger and still making, you know, minimum wage that can barely pay the bills. So people are banding together. Um, you know, in sort of non-traditional ways, things like GoFundMe's, things like mutual aid groups where people get together and sort of, uh, if there's somebody who can help, uh, somebody who needs it, gives that help to them more directly. And uh, yeah, we're seeing a, a rise of that sort of helping rather than donating through traditional charities. Yeah, indeed. Let me quote a piece, a couple of sentences from your article. Uh, Canada's big brand name charities are being bypassed in favor of more targeted donations. Now, this has implications for the future of philanthropy, which is becoming more grassroots, direct, and increased focused on social justice as well. And and I think probably what we're noticing more, Claire, that and you're pointing this out, is that the brand name charities, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, the United Way, those are the big brand names uh, to name but a few, are, are being passed over or uh, foregone in, in where people can find a cause that they can more directly relate to. Not that the work of the Salvation Army isn't legitimate and donations desperately needed, but some of us have chosen to fund a specific family or an individual instead of a large organization. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and something people are also increasingly interested in funding is, you know, how can I help address the social inequalities that are, you know, I see close to home, uh, you know, over the summer with the protests over the police killing of George Floyd. There's been a lot of attention on uh, racism, um, you know, more people there. There was all kinds of, you know, big big corporations like Google and Apple were donating millions of dollars to help fight anti-black racism. Um, we saw people like uh, Mackenzie Scott, who's uh, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, mm-hmm. giving $1.7 million billion U.S. away to, uh, you know, to, to organizations that are helping to fight racism and help with social justice. And so that's really different from you know, when you hear about gifts, you know, over hundreds of millions of dollars. It's usually to build a new hospital sure. or something like that. It's for a new university building. So that's a big change. So uh, what is uh, what what is the uh, as you've done some homework on this and you've been tracking the way we are our donation habits and our generosity quotient over the years beyond ability to pay or donate or not as is a factor definitely this year Claire what else is the what other big mindset changes have you noticed um, yeah, well, something else that's uh, food banks are are doing quite well. Donations. I mean, I don't want to say they're doing quite well. They need they need our help. They sure. still need lots of donations. They need as you know as much help as we can give them because uh, people who need to access them are way up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, people who would uh, traditionally Kate Bean, who uh, works at the organization Charity Intelligence, and is talking to wealthy donors all the time about where to direct their money, says you know she's hearing people who are saying you know instead of donating to the symphony, which is also, uh, you know, lovely, worthy cause, you know, I'm going to allocate a portion of my family's private foundation towards food banks instead. So the things that it's more an acute need, people are saying, you know, it's uh, it's nice to have the nice to have, but people are hungry and they need housing. Sure. And, uh, they need some more direct help. What are you hearing, though, from the big outfits, the big, uh, the United Ways, the Red Cross, the Sally Ann's, and so on, these other major uh, organizations who rely uh, heavily, not not exclusively, because they do receive some government funding, but uh, charitable donations from average Canadians form a huge portion of their annual budgets. What are they telling you? Uh, they're worried. They're they're really worried. Um, and, you know, they've been asking for more government support as kind of a bailout right. to get them through this period of time. Uh, something else that I think is important for Canadians to know is that charities are, they're a huge part of our economy. They're, you know, the nonprofit and charitable sector is 8.5% of our GDP. 
it employs 1.4 million people. So that's a lot, you know, what it, that, that's a big shift. And that's, you know, that's a lot of people's jobs who are staff at those charities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, regardless of what you think about, you know, the work that they do, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that has real implications for the entire Canadian economy if they're struggling and perhaps some of them are failing. Yeah, well, it's something we don't typically think of either as the charitable sector being an employer and uh, having over well over a million employees coast to coast. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So what then are the big organizations telling you? I mean, okay, they're they're looking for bailouts, as are other many other sectors of the economy, Claire. But going forward, as you note in your piece in McLean's, this is definitely an indicator of the of, of the future of philanthropy. We're changing our attitudes towards giving, not not our generosity necessarily, just how, uh, how we're giving and to whom we're giving our funds. So what are these larger organizations? organizations tell you about how they need to use the big word of the year pivot in order to be still a recipients of our generosity <laughs> yeah well i thought that imagine canada report had some interesting things to say about um you know how charities are changing the services they've delivered a lot of them have done what everybody else is doing and shifted to you know online service sure. delivery and zoom programs uh to the degree that they're able to um, so yeah, they, charities are adapting. I think a lot of them are adapting quickly. I think some of them, you know, for better or for worse, won't adapt and probably will fail just as lots of businesses are, are failing mm-hmm. um, during COVID. There's just going to be a big reorganization and that's going to be really hard for people who lose their jobs and, uh, you know, people who are recipients of, uh, you know, the type of aid that charities get. But I also do, I think it's, you know, I think it's an opportunity for us to sit and think and, you know, just like in COVID generally, just rethink how do we want our society to work? Um, you know, does it really make sense that the charitable sector is that big? Should some of the programs they deliver be delivered by the government instead? Would that be more efficient if we had our tax dollars, you know, helping some of these people? Um I think, yeah, it's it's forcing them to rethink things in a way that's painful, but that I'm hoping will be positive for society in the long run. And so, but the, the, the from the point of view of those of us who give, our attitudes have changed, and more or less, uh, or certainly are changing. And, and so, the recipients of our uh, of our generosity are going to have to take note of that and adjust their um, the way they do uh, business and the way they operate, and and also get our attention that there's a lot of change going on right now. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And, you know, there is uh, charities aren't businesses, but they do have to compete for our dollars. Yes, businesses do. So, yes, I think there's going to have to be some rethinking and some changes in, uh, you know, marketing, if you will, (laughs) to reflect uh, to reflect our new priorities and interests. We have, uh, and over the years, and I, I, I use this adjective um, uh, with, with tongue-in-cheek, Canadians are notoriously generous, Claire. We are, as a people, pretty darn generous. And even in tough times, when the cash flow is considerably diminished for many of us, we still find a way to be helpful. I don't see any changes in that basic attitude going forward. Do you? No, I I don't think so. I think it's yeah that more we're we're starting to you know that the our neighbor the suffering of our neighbors of the people right in front of us who live around us is just more direct and in our face now. Things like you know the injustices of racism um, have been you know laid bare by the pandemic. It's just becoming harder to ignore things like that, and that people are responding to that and wanting to help. And I think that's a good impulse. I also think it's important not to forget the things that it's, you know, aren't, aren't quite in front of our face that there are, you know, people in other countries Mm -hmm. need their help as well. Um, yeah. to you know, to not forget about those other priorities too, but in general, you know, I don't think that's such a bad thing that we're, we're seeing people right in front of our face who need our help. Indeed. Claire Brownell, uh, thanks very much for this. It's important stuff that uh, we, you just take note. We know we can feel these changes going on around us. And in many cases, we can see them. Sometimes it's good to hear about it as well. We appreciate your, your taking the time to share this with us this morning. And we do wish you luck, by the way. You're moving from the uh, associate editor suite to become a, a reporter over there at The Logic. Best of luck to you.
Thanks very much. I'm excited about it. I hope you are. We'll look forward to reading your stuff, Clara. Thanks for this. <laughs> okay, thank you. Port Moody's Station Museum is uh, looking to put the work back into the city's working class roots. Uh, the uh, executive director is with us to talk about starting a men's shed society in, a, in an old shed uh, on the grounds of the museum that uh, used to uh, be a work shed. So uh, say basically recycling back into its original situation. Here to talk about it is the executive director of the Port Moody Station Museum, Jim Miller. Jim, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you. It's good to have you with us. First of all, just remind everyone about the Port Moody Station Museum. How long have you been around? Where are you? And what's the story? Oh, it's a long story, actually. Uh, it started in uh, 1969, and we got the museum in 1983. And what it is, it's the second CPR station in Port Moody, and it got moved to this roundabout at the corner of uh, Moody and Murray Street. Okay. And uh, so it's been in that location since the mid-80s then? Uh, yes, and it's interesting. It's moved twice before that. CP moved it once. And, of course, well. it, 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 we are reminded by this and uh, by the museum itself, Jim, uh, of, of the nature of the founding of Port Moody. It very much was a working-class town built essentially out of being the terminus originally for the railroad. Yes, you're correct on that, uh, uh, Port Moody is the original terminus. It was uh, uh, first train arrived in 1885, and then uh, uh, another train went on into Vancouver in May of '87. So it was the active terminus for the for the going on three years type thing. Now tell us about the shed before we dive into this whole men's shed business. Tell us about the the actual building uh, that you're intending to convert. Well, it was built as a storage shed for a lumber carrier. Uh, that was one of the items that uh, we got as an artifact. And it did get restored, but they decided that uh, the powers that be that we couldn't actually maintain it well enough. So it got shipped off to uh, a museum in Chilliwack. And then the shed basically got used for storage and a bit of a workshop. Uh, actually, there was the first fellow, uh, Charlie McNary, who's the shop is named after now. Um, he was our handyman for quite a period of time. Mm -hmm. And then um, it sort of went into a, a layover when he uh, uh, had to go into a, a retirement home. And then we have had a couple of other fellows that have worked as handymen around for us. Uh, and they use the shop a little bit, but the shop is mainly storage at the moment. Right, as sheds tend to be used for when uh, when there's no nothing else. <laughs> well, there's, we got a shed, put it in the shed. <laughs> but, but eventually, someone goes, hey, wait a second, we have a shed. And it, it, it could be more useful than just filling full of stuff that we can't figure out to put anywhere else. And, and so then you co got connected. Now, tell us the story here, Jim. Uh, first of all, I have to tell you that up until 48 hours ago, I had no idea that there was such a thing as the BC Men's Shed Association. How did you come to know about them? Um, I, it I kind of uh, grew on me somewhere. Uh, I actually got a grant uh, four years ago to try to get seniors engaged more in the museum. That was the whole purpose of the grant. And we started looking around to see what we could do. Like, instead of a, a grandparent bringing their grandchild to the museum maybe once or twice or every other year, mm -hmm. uh, what could we do to get seniors more actively involved in the museum? And I needed it to be kind of a win-win situation. Like, I couldn't just set up a another senior center, per se. Right. I had to do something that would actually benefit the museum quite a bit as well. So uh, in looking around at things, um, this Men's Shed Society, it started in the 1990s down in uh, Australia. It's actually an idea that grew out of there, mm -hmm. spread to New Zealand, uh, went to Ireland. Um, there's some in the States now, and there's uh, I'm not sure how many there is in Canada now. And the whole premise of the Men's Shed Society is that it's men helping themselves, and it's working towards 
men's health. Well, according to our friends at the Tri-City News, Jim, it's uh, the, the tenth, uh, the Port Moody shed would be the tenth such shed here in British Columbia alone. And they also do go on to point and agree with you. There are over a thousand of these in Australia and New Zealand down under. It's a big deal. Uh, yes, it is. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, they vary quite a bit on what they actually do. Like the greatest majority, I guess, uh, do woodworking things, yeah. but then they do all sorts of community projects and some are in more in car repair or res- restoration. And it, it varies quite a bit. It depends on what the, uh, the group in the shed wants to do. So is that so? Now, do they uh, do they work out an arrangement with the the host? In this case, it would be the uh, the museum in Port Moody, uh, but it's your shed. So, do you have some kind of agreement whereby they use the facility uh, uh, and and provide uh, again that access, for example, to seniors to uh, improve their their tactile skills? Uh, exactly, and uh, I am working on that. We uh, we had to get permission from the city because uh, our situation for the museum is that uh, the Heritage Society owns the uh, the building, mm-hmm. but we are on city land, and we have a lease agreement with the city for okay. use. So we had to get permission from the city to have a secondary use as opposed to just the museum. And um, we got that just on Tuesday. And so um, we're working now on trying, uh, we'll be setting up a a new men's shed society itself. We won't be using the the Heritage Society. And then uh, we'll be working out the agreement as to how that's actually going to work. So how do seniors listening to us right now, now the Port Moody's, the Tri-Cities area, there's a lot of people who uh, travel through that area frequently and live there. So suppose now, uh, listening to the radio on a Saturday morning over a cup of coffee, there's a guy out there at the Station Museum who says, I can go with some of my pals and learn to do something. I I never went to a school with a shop, for example. I never learned any of those basic skills they used to teach in high school. Uh, A lot of us didn't. So uh, you know, there are there are certain skill sets that are completely lacking. And then on, on the other hand, as you well know, Jim, there are talented, skilled people who have spent a lifetime in the trades, for example, who would love nothing better than to share their expertise with rookies like me. I couldn't say it any better than you just have. Um, that's uh, part of the whole thing is uh, uh, lifelong learning. So, um, you know, if you've been whatever and you want to learn something else, um, it's amazing the uh, the skill sets that do come through in the men's shed. Indeed. So do they, uh, we'll have to get somebody from the Men's Shed Society to join us here and, and tell us a little bit more, but your understanding of this and certainly willingness to play ball with them, based especially on the popularity of the movement worldwide, says a lot of good things about them before, before you even get started. And that's a plus too, isn't it, Jim? It certainly is, yes. And... Uh, as the premise is, uh, it's on, on men's health, and um, it, it helps the community. So, And we're a community museum, and we're trying to be as involved in the community as much as we possibly can, and uh, not just expecting people to come to see a, um, a history display. Well, it's a good move, Jim. It's a, it's a good step forward, and it's a good community move as well. Port Moody Station Museum Executive Director is with us this morning. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for being with us. Jim Miller uh, joining us from Port Moody. Thanks, Jim. Have a great day. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.